Welcome to Sidley's The Restructuring Room Podcast. Thank you for joining us again for part two of our riveting deep dive into the Weinstein Company bankruptcy that dominated the headlines in 2018 and impacted some of the biggest names in Hollywood. We will now rejoin Tom, Juliana, and their special guest, Andy Mitchell of Lantern Capital Partners. Changing subjects now. When you got into the company, what surprised you about the way that the Weinstein companies were run or about the situation that you stepped into? One, and I've been quoted on this before, for a living, I go into non-performing, mismanaged companies, right? No stranger to it. This is one of the worst I've ever seen, hands down. The financial records, we had to go back and get the server, which was an interesting fight because the police department wanted a server. So they're trying to compensate the server because of the alleged emails and everything else. And I realized I need a server because they didn't save a lot of files. So I had to go find emails where Harvey Weinstein was with some director, producer, actor promising a contract. And that was the only thing we could find. To me, that was absurd, right? And the other thing that was amazing, these are not amazing to me, but there was no consistency in the way they did business. If you went in, you would expect that movie to movie that there's similarities in the contract. Like they had somewhat of a standard contract and they would start there and then they would deviate. It was like they just made it up every time they redid a deal. So it was very difficult. You couldn't assume anything from one movie to the next. You had to go through and look at the rights. As you're well aware now, in working with us, a number of the rights weren't properly secured. There was a number of critical elements in intellectual property that had not been tied down. So the company really, I mean, the financial situation was so much more dire. Billion dollars of claims. I mean, the company had already burned hundreds of millions. It was out of money. But it was interesting. People were like, well, we've never had money. I mean, I've talked to actors and celebrities that were like, yeah, Harvey would always be like, oh, shoot, we've got to turn off the lights tomorrow unless we get more money, and then he'd bring in another investor. So that was a surprise, that it, this was not a, what everybody thought but it even was. Even setting aside the sexual abuse allegations, it was a poorly run company. It was, it was a poorly run company. In my opinion, it was a poorly run company outside the sexual harassment litigation. It was very little accountability. There was mixing between projects. Movie companies are a lot like real estate companies. You set up an entity, a special purpose entity, every time you do a movie, and that has its own investors, its own cash flows, and you're supposed to keep it separate. They did not do that very well. So they were moving, <laughs> you know, so it was difficult. The only thing that was probably clean was the library because it had a secured loan on it. So, of course, the lender was taking all the steps necessary to separate the cash flow and make sure that they were in a protected position. But once you got outside that, it was the Wild West. The number of claimants, the way he financed it was very creative on the way he financed it. So that was probably number one. Number two was, and this is not a surprise given what happened with the women acquisitions, the HDR department was a mess. There was no order or structure to it. People had different deals based on all types of things, favoritism, everything else. And one story that people are always amazed at is when we took over the company, is you know, we could not buy the company, the shell. We could only buy the assets. So we had to go to employees, and I had a meeting with all of our employees, and I sat down and said, look, we formed Land Entertainment, new company. We're going to go acquire all these assets, but we now need to hire and onboard you because your employment was with an entity that's not going to exist anymore. And we sat and we said, we're going to go and we're going to, the employee files were almost non-existent. We're going to correctly have you fill out an employee file. We're going to build a file and we're going to hire you and onboard you the right way. And I'll never forget it. Young women that work for us rose her hand and said, well, will that include a background check and any other kind of testing? 
And I said, well, I said, well, like any employer, we reserve the right to background check or criminal check or drug testing, whatever we want to do. And yes, of course, we can do that. And she walked up afterwards and said, you know, I really appreciate your honesty that we're going to have to go through that. And I said, you know, if I, if I ask, are you concerned? She goes, no, I'm not at all, but you just watch. And the next day, at least 15 people resigned. And I, all I could think to myself is, what do these people know about their own personal file that when I told them they're going to have to, you know, just basically fill out the equivalent of a credit app in order to work on employment? And you know, yeah, we have a right to, I mean, we just had massive criminal accusations. I mean, you wouldn't buy any company. Right, exactly. You'd, you'd probably advise me, Andy, it's time to go do a background check on all these people and get them to agree and go through the references and make sure you're not inheriting any other problems. And they ran for the door. So was it because they were guilty? Was it because they had something else? But it was really a complete operational turnaround from the bottom up. And the employees that stayed or did great, and I'm not faulting those that left. There may have been other reasons. Is just simply it's time to get away from this. It's time for a fresh start. But the speed at which people resigned after they knew that I was going to come in and run it, the, what we consider the right way to run any company, still surprised me this day. Were there people, though, who embraced that? You, having worked in the old company, embraced there's still people working today for the company. So we've, Land Entertainment has now expanded. We've got Spyglass Media Group. So some of those people work for Spyglass now as we've grown the company and added new partners. But there's still a few employees that are like, you know, you saved this place and we appreciate what you did. Oh, great. And now they have great jobs and it's exactly what it should be. It was, so I say bankruptcy is a great chance for renewal. It's like going to physical therapy or going through a massive surgery. It's not fun, but when you get on the other side, you don't have to deal with all the stuff in the past. And that's why I'm very proud of this deal. Not to mention the fact that it's a good financial investment, but more importantly, it showed what bankruptcy is supposed to do, is give a company a chance to survive and move forward, and we're still in business today, five years later. Was it fun? Has it been fun being involved in Hollywood? In hindsight, it was a lot of fun. There were times that, in the middle of it, and sometimes, as you know, I was calling you on it, that it just seemed like life was too short, and we were never going to get out of it. But I think anybody doing these big bankruptcies has been there. You've been involved in some of the biggest ones. I mean, bankruptcy's tough. It wears you out. It's a... Yeah, it was a 24-hour-a-day job. I had a corporate apartment there. I was traveling back and forth. We also had a place in New York, and I think it physically took a lot out of me. I think no matter what you say, no matter how much you want to be a tough guy, when you open up the paper every day and people are making accusations about you and your mother calls up and says, is Meryl Streep really suing you? What did you do wrong? Are you an evil person? Yeah, I'll never forget that. You know, your mom calls up, is Meryl Streep really suing you? I know. So I, I, it left a mark. But I think you look at our profession and restructuring, I can't tell you anybody walks out without a little bit of PTSD. This is, I mean, lives were destroyed on this too. I mean, hundreds of millions of dollars. I mean, I've run into people that were completely wiped out by this because they had so much to Harvey and it's, it's an unfortunate part of it. But I did enjoy and I, I do enjoy now. You know, it's, the media has their view of everything, but Hollywood, there's some really great creative people. As you know, some of the A-list talent have become really good friends of mine. Some of the directors were making great movie right now, Equalizer 3 with Antoine Fuqua, who was, we owned his movie through the Weinstein Company, and really excited about that. It'll be Denzel's probably last movie in the series. So one thing, people are like, how did you go through it? And it's no different than when I bought the what is now the Montage Kapalua, is when you know you have a good asset. Like, these are great movies that people enjoyed watching them, all ranges of movies and great TV. When you have a great asset that's worth preserving, I don't think there's anything more rewarding to say I helped get it through the abyss and put it back in hands where people are enjoying it every day. And now we've got partnership with Lionsgate and Warner Brothers and all these guys. So that part of it's very rewarding, very great. The PTSD, yeah, give me another year of relaxation <laughs> and, and, and I'll, I'll get back to wherever I was in the fall of 2017. So you just got back from Cannes, you said, right? Yeah. So what was it like, guy growing up in Texas, 
being in well, Cannes. Well, now I'm a Cannes pro, as they call me. It's, it's strange. People recognize me. I ran into it. And if it wasn't for our partnerships in Europe, I don't know if I'd go to Cannes. Cannes changed a lot. But this year we had Indiana Jones, The Dial of Destiny, probably Harrison Ford's last one in that. Leonardo DiCaprio had a, a new movie out. So Cannes is still a great opportunity to learn about what's going on in the world, connect with people. The, the industry's changed a lot in the five years I've been there. As you know, the streamers, as they call it, the streamer revolt, the non-Hollywood. I mean, we went from Warner Brothers, Lionsgate, Sony, people like that that were recognized in the industry to now Google and Amazon's obviously Netflix have really entered. So the, the market's changed a lot. So I'm no longer the new guy. I think Ted Sarandis and Netflix is, you know, it's these are not typical Hollywood lineage. And so maybe it's easier for me now than in 2018 when I was a complete outsider. I've been joined by others, but it's a great product. I mean, people love to enjoy this. And you know, it's fun to go to Cannes and watch everybody, watch people go down the red carpet and get excited about new movies. And as you know, Cannes is more of a, there's still that art flair to it. So you see movies in Cannes that you probably don't see elsewhere. Top Gun premiered there last year. So I think internationally, there's a lot going on. It's a great asset. I mean, people love movies. So 99% of the people have gotten over it. So let me ask you, switching topics, what do you see as the future of change in media based on all the new technology? I'm mostly in LA and we do movies everywhere, but when I'm in Hollywood, the amount of, I wouldn't say trepidation, but definitely the uncertainty gets to Hollywood a lot more. As an outsider, I look at it and they're like, oh, the whole world's changed. Streamers have flipped open. In fact, we're in the middle of, as we see here today, in the middle of a writer's strike. Because what is it about? Hey, these streamers are coming in. We're not getting paid fairly. They see these huge deals with Netflix and Amazon and whatnot. And so for me, I look at and say the balance sheet of these people. I mean, Apple is a huge player now, right? I mean, Apple just came out. With, they were the ones that did Leonardo DiCaprio movie with Martin Scorsese as director. They're the ones that just did Emancipation. And so when you talk about guys with that big a balance sheet, that to me is a bigger issue than the changing technology because I'm like, technology's always changed. I mean, when I was a little kid, I remember like first you had uh, just HBO and then you had Showtime and all of a sudden there were too many cable channels so you had to start bundling them and worry about how to do it. Then there was the big debate, do I go VHS or beta? I'm gonna really date myself, right? And that was gonna change the industry forever. Then it was Blu-ray or DVD. And so now when you look at the distribution, which is what Hollywood worries most about, is it's shattered the industry and changed it. The hardest part is, is, well, if you don't release it in the theater, that's the only honest ballot box, right? Because you can go up, you can put it on your credit card, you can pay cash. So when you release a movie in a theater, everybody involved has a fair proxy of how it did. The fact that movies are getting released on streamers where only Netflix knows how it did makes it a lot more difficult for people to know, is it really a good movie or did everybody turn off after 10 minutes and Netflix never told anybody? And for actors and writers... Well, if that movie had gone into theaters, it may have done $500 million, and I'll never know. So that's what's really going on right now that I think makes it hard to be an investor in it, is the talent and writers and other people feeling like somehow this new system prejudices them against what they would have had in the good old days. And so that's really what's going on in Hollywood. But to me, look, anytime somebody comes in with limitless balance sheet, here in Dallas, you know, we're very close to the AT&T guys. When AT&T and DirecTV and Warner Brothers all got together, people were like, that's not fair anymore. AT&T will create content just to get people to use the phone, right? Same thing Apple. Apple, all they care about is selling an iPhone. They'll give away their service and they'll produce movies just to get you to stay on Apple products. And Hollywood's trying to figure out how to deal with that. So really, that's probably the number one discussion in Cannes. But I'm like, guys, We've always done this. We continue to change. And by the way, watching stuff at home is nothing new. We, we just did it from the beta, the VHS, then we did a DVD. And now we, we're fortunate enough that it can wire right to our phone. So if you really look at it, 
there's a lot more demand because whereas before we had to wait till we got home to pop in the VHS, you know, I've been sitting here watching videos the whole time we've been talking. <laughs> but, you know, that's the thing is I can watch Breaking Bad in between sessions on the bike. So if you look at the demand skyrocketing, right, because we want, we want content. We were doing podcasts here and this is, you know, when you look at all the ways that you can touch people, I think it's an exciting time to be involved. But there's a lot of people also losing a lot of money right now. As a long-time restructuring professional, setting aside the entertainment industry, how do you see restructuring changing in, in the next cycle? Restructuring, in my opinion, has gone more mainstream than it was when I got in. When I got in, restructuring was, nobody wanted to be involved. It was 1998, we had the 2000 thing coming up, we had dot-coms and M&A, everybody wanted to be an M&A, fast-growing IPOs. Restructuring was like an unnecessary evil. Somewhere over the last 20 years, restructuring became mainstream. You have major LPs are now allocating money to top restructuring firms, and that created more competition. And so, in my opinion, it's harder to get deals done. People are much more comfortable in bankruptcy. They're much more comfortable buying bankruptcy assets. I mean, 20 years ago, bankruptcy still felt like the end of the world. The company died, and you were trying to refresh it and move on. And now you look, and it's, it's a very typical thing. We fly on bankrupt airlines. We buy cars from bankrupt <laughs> car companies. And major limited partners, which are my clients at the end of the day, have no problem investing in distress. They're very comfortable and whatnot. So there's a lot more competition. So short way to answer your question, one, I think there's a lot more competition in distressed investing and turnaround. There's a lot more firms in distressed investing and turnaround. There's a lot more professionals in distressed investing and turnaround because people have seen how much money you can make either as a professional, as an investor, and whatnot. So now our professionals investors say it's harder because there's more people investing. So I think the maturity of the industry, why it's good for America and probably good for companies, makes it harder to invest. The other negative trend that presses on me the most as an investor is the cost of going through restructuring is astronomical, right? I mean, professional fees. When I got involved, it was, you knew, you either had to work for the debtor or the unsecured credit committee, and then maybe you got lucky and got hired by a bank. That was the way it was like, we either get hired by the debtor or the creditors committee. Now you can work for the secured lenders, you can work for, and there was always equity committees. There's, I've only done two of them in my career, but it just seems like everybody has standing in the court and that the poor debtor is responsible for everybody's bills that they ever borrowed money or did business with. Unions can get standing. And then the fees are, even tracking with our latest inflation trend, massive inflation of fees, the cost of getting deals done. So that is what's going to stop people from being able to do bankruptcies, I think. And it's not stop, but it's just something you're going to have to factor in. And of course, if I have to pay more fees to go through a process, well, that means I have to pay less for whatever I'm buying. You know, if you had to pay a 10% so commission on selling your home. going to pay the credit recoveries. Yeah. And so, and also the, you would think precedent makes it easier to get deals done. But as you know, there's been this hostile kind of inter-creditor fights that didn't exist to the extent they used to. So, you know, you know, I've talked about that, the creditor battles that are costing poor companies problems. It's actually not the company's fault. It's that the creditors are fighting out and the poor judge is trying to just stop them. It's like, you know, while you guys are, it's like I always say the expression, don't mow the yard when the house is on fire. Like, you guys are focused on the wrong thing. You should be focused on getting the company out of bankruptcy and maximizing the value of this entity. Instead, you're mirrored for months in really hostile tactics between creditors and everything else that doesn't allow the company to get out because there's uncertainty about are the banks going to own the company, the creditors, or whoever's bidding on it. So there you go. Andy, thank you very much for coming in and spending the time with us today. So one last question. Any thoughts, any just, you know, big picture thoughts you want to share looking back at the transaction and the aftermath? One thing I want people to take away is that and people ask me all the time, including my five children, why you, daddy? Why you? 
You didn't know anything about Hollywood. You didn't seem like the logical player. And look, we've developed an entire industry and I've developed a career over basically being the fire department for corporate companies. So people understand is that trained professionals and what we're doing and, and the way you invest in these companies and the process you go through needs to happen. Nobody in Hollywood could have done it. They just didn't understand 363. They didn't understand bankruptcy. It was just a foreign language to them. They're like, Andy, you're, you're talking, a, a, like, you don't make any sense. Like, what, what do you, what, what do you, even is bankruptcy court? So as I look back on it, if it wasn't me, it would have been some, one of my other peers, right? Just like if it wasn't silly representing the secured creditors, it would have been one of your other law firms because it was a problem that somebody had to get out of. When Harvey happened, Hurricane Harvey happened during this, and we did a Harvey thing down at my club in Houston. And, you know, basically remember Harvey and everything else. Well, I had a bag that was like a Harvey fundraiser and somebody saw it when I landed in LA and they're like, how dare you raise money for Harvey <laughs> Weinstein? I'm like, no, no, no. It was a, a hurricane that hit Texas and flooded everything. And we had a big charity event. It has nothing to do with trying to save Harvey. Like, but, but that shows it, you that the, the, it shows you how electrifying this deal was, how many people had their eyes on it. And for a lot of people, Hollywood specifically, this was the first time somebody like me had come in that was extremely comfortable in bankruptcy, in fact, preferred to be in front of the United States Bankruptcy Court, knew how to talk to the secured creditors. I had to get them comfortable, along with you know Bob at FTI, was because the secured creditors were like, we're gonna take our cloud and go home. And the unsecured creditors were split between creditors, typical creditors, and the victims, which was a, another nuance of this case. It was completely different because you got all these, I mean, you had $600 million of unsecured claims, effectively, and then you had the victims, and I'm sitting there as a professional, I'm like, well, there's been no judgment. So how do you know what the amount is? So the victims were sitting there at the very beginning of their process, trying to figure out how to procure, and that was uncharted territory for me. But again, my career and my experience, I think it needed to happen. And it wouldn't have mattered you know, to me if it was a boat manufacturer or lucky brand or anything else. And so I look back at it, the thing to remember is, it's just like the fire department needs to come or the Marines need to come. You know, my kids always ask, how, do you, how does the government choose between the Marines, the Army, the Air Force, and the Navy? And I said, well, what does the situation call for? And the situation called for our profession to come in and an investor like me that was willing to take the risk. It's still crazy. I mean, I'm still called out by people like you are insane. And a lot of my colleagues are like, well, he was always insane. He just <laughs> didn't have that enough capital. But I had the capital and the skills and the network to get it done. If I had not been a restructuring professional, I couldn't have got it done. As a Hollywood professional, I probably couldn't have got it done either because the constituents weren't going to believe another Hollywood investment banker or Hollywood fund that they would be able to overcome this. So I think there was a right balance of, hey, this person seems to be comfortable and understand and capable of getting through it. We had a great team. It wasn't just me. You know, I've got a lot of colleagues at Lantern. My institutional investors stood by me. It's the most sophisticated firm. So when you look back at this, these things need to happen. They're never fun. Everybody wishes that he had never done it and they could just remember Pulp Fiction without remembering what happened in 2018 and sparking an entire movement that brought down a quarter of Wall Street and a quarter of this. But at the same time, as a father of two girls, it needed to happen. We needed to adjust. We need to. Bankruptcy is also a very, when companies fail, you and I don't panic because we look at it and say, it's a part of the natural cycle. Sometimes these companies need to go away. So I think in, in trailing, like, it needed to happen. There's a thousand different courses that could have gone that didn't happen in this case. But if you look back, these movies and go, go home tonight and get on mostly Netflix, but others, and you can watch these great movies. And if the Weinstein's name's still there, you can talk to the Guild. We couldn't <laughs> take them off all, but we, where we could take it off, we've taken it off so that people can enjoy the movies without worrying about whether or not they're contributing to the delinquency of an individual. All right. Well, Andy, thank you very much. It's really interesting, and good luck. 
Yeah. Good luck with it. All right. Thank you. Thank you for joining us. For more information on upcoming episodes of Sidley's The Restructuring Room podcast, and for more on Sidley's restructuring team, please visit sidley.com.